according to Matthew, starting uh, chapter 18. So chapter 18 of Matthew, starting at verse 15, if you'd like to turn to that in your Bible. Chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, uh, go and tell him his fault. Uh, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay his Master ordered him to be uh, sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of, the, of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a <clears throat> hundred denarii and seizing him he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. Uh, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will forgive you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place they were greatly dis distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt <clears throat> because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Well, if you could keep your Bibles open in front of you at Matthew 18. If you're having trouble keeping your Bible open, it may be that you've lost your Bible. I have a little ESV that's been sitting around RTC for the last month couple of months if it's yours please come and grab it afterwards but for the moment thanks I'll, I'll borrow it because I've lost mine for the moment 
So, uh, come and grab it off me afterwards. Each week, Kevin Tunnell was required to mail one dollar to a family he'd rather forget. They sued him for over one point five million dollars, but they settled for nine hundred and thirty-six dollars to be paid in weekly installments, one dollar at a time. The family expected the payment to be made every Friday, so that Tunnell would not forget what happened on that Friday in 1982. That was the day that their daughter Maggie was killed. Uh, there's, even a, there's even a movie made about the story. It's called Dead Drunk, the Kevin Tunnell story. Kevin Tunnell was convicted of manslaughter and drunk driving. He was 17. Maggie was 18. Tunnell served a court sentence. He also spent seven years campaigning against drunk driving, six years more than was required. But he kept, kept forgetting to send the dollar. The weekly restitution lasted up until the year 2000, 1982 to 2000, 18 years, the very age that his victim was when she died. Tunnell makes out the check each week, puts it in the post, mails it to the family, and then the money is deposited into a scholarship fund. The family took him to court four times because of his failure to comply. After the most recent appearance, Tanel spent 30 days in prison. He insists that he's not defying the court order, but rather he's tormented by the memory of the girl's death and the constant reminders week after week after week. At one stage, he offered the family two large boxes of checks covering right up to the year 2001, one year more than was required. They refused. It's not the money they were interested in. They said it was penance. In fact, the, the mother is quoted as saying, we want to receive the check every single week on time. He must understand that we are going to pursue this until the year 2000. We will go back to court every single month if we have to. Now, few would question the anger of the family. One would have to be very naive to think that the guilty should get off unpunished. But I do have one concern. Is 936 payments enough? Not for Tanel, mind you, but for the family to demand. When they receive the final payment... Will they be at peace? In August 2000, was the family able to put the matter to rest? Was 18 years of restitution enough? Was it sufficient? Was 196 months worth of remorse adequate? How much is enough? Were you in the family and was to, were to now your target, how many payments would you require? Perhaps better stated, how many payments do you require? No one, I repeat, no one makes it through life free of injury. Somewhere, at some time, someone has hurt you. Like the 18-year-old, you were a victim. She died because someone drank too much. A part of you has died because someone spoke too much, demanded too much neglected too much. Everyone gets wounded. And hence, everyone must decide, how many payments will I require? 
how many payments will I demand? Now, we may not require that the, the offender write out a check every month, but we have other ways of settling the score, don't we? Silence is a popular technique. Ignore them when they speak. Distance is equally effective. When they come your way, walk in the other direction. Cross to the other side of the street. Nagging is another tool of revenge. I see that uh, you still have fingers on your hand. Funny, you never use them to dial my number. It's amazing how creative we can get or be at getting even. If I can soil one evening, spoil one day, foil one Friday, then justice is served and I'm content. For now. Until I think of you again. Until I see you again. Until something happens that reminds me of the deed that you did, and then I'll demand another check. Then I'll require another payment. I'm not about to let you heal before I do. And as long as you suffer, as long as I suffer, I'm going to make sure that you suffer. As long as I'm hurt, you are going to hurt. If you cut me, I'm going to make you feel bad for as long as I bleed. Even if I have to reopen the wound myself. Call it an addiction. We, we start the habit innocently enough. Indulging maybe just in a few doses of hurt and anger. Not much. Maybe just a, a needle or two of resentment. The rush numbs the hurt. And so we come back for more and we up the degree. We don't only despise what he did, but we despise who he is. Insult him, shame him, ridicule him. The surge energizes. We start feeling good. Dosed on high doses of malice and revenge. The roles are reversed. We are no longer the victim. We are the victor. And it feels so good. The progression is predictable. Hurt becomes hate. Hate becomes rage. As we become junkies, and we can't even make it through the day without mainlining on bigotry and bitterness, hatred and hurtfulness, selfishness and unforgiveness. How will the score be settled? How do I break the cycle? How many payments will I demand? Peter has exactly the same question for Jesus in our text this morning. In verse 21, the message translates it this way. Master, how many times do I forgive a brother or a sister who hurts me? Seven? Peter's worried about over-forgiving someone. The Jewish law stipulated that the wounded person forgive three times. See, Amos 1.3, for example. Well, Peter's willing to double it and throw in one more for good measure. No doubt he thinks Jesus will be quite impressed. Well, the master is not. And his answer still stuns us in verse 22. Seven? Hardly. Try 70 times seven. And if you're pausing to multiply, you've missed the point. Keeping tabs on our mercy, says Jesus, is not being merciful. If you're calculating your grace, you're not being gracious. There should never, ever be a point, Jesus is saying, where grace and forgiveness and mercy is exhausted. But by this point, Jesus' listeners are thinking of the Kevin Tennells in our world. 
what about the father who abandoned me when I was a child? What about the husband who dumped me for a newer and a younger model? Maybe she was even a model. What about the boss who laid me off and I got the sick child and, and, and the hospital bills are mounting up? Well, the master raises his hand and silences Peter and tells him the story of the forgetful servant, as I like to call him. Verses 23 to 28. I just love this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, and payment to be made. And so the servant fell upon his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. This servant had a serious problem. 10,000 talents. 10,000. Okay, well, let me put that in today's currency for you. It's easy to do. In Jesus' day, one talent equaled 6,000 denarii. Therefore, 10,000 talents equals 60 million denarii. And we know from Jesus' parables that one denarii equals one day's wage. And so the math is easy. Now, according to the Australian Government Department of Labor's Fair Work website, The average Australian wage, as of May 8, 2014, is $28. And so for an eight-hour day, that's $224. Now multiply that by 60 million. And this man owed, at a million, in today's currency, here it comes, a staggering $13,440,000,000. That's $13.5 An astronomical amount. Now... On the average Australian wage, working every day of the week, no Sabbaths, no holidays, no day off, no money for himself at all, it would take him 16,383 years to become debt-free. Now, you might say, well, Bill Gates could afford that. He's worth $76 billion, isn't he, at the moment? $81 billion? Well, I can just imagine if... Jesus was talking to Bill Gates, it would go something like this. Well, Bill, according to statistics, last year you made $11.5 billion from Microsoft. Bill, that amounts to $31.5 million per day. Bill, that's your denarius. Multiply that by 60 million, Bill, and you owe a whopping $1.9 quadrillion. Million billion, trillion, quadrillion. So even Bill can't afford it. But that's not even the point that Jesus is making. You see, at the time of Jesus, the talent was the highest monetary unit, and 10,000 was the highest Greek numeral. So what Jesus is actually trying to say is what this guy owes here in owing 10,000 talents, he owes an incalculable, insurmountable amount of money. No listener of this parable at the time of Jesus 
could even imagine such a large amount of money. And Jesus' hearers would have thought that this is, this is an impossible debt. It's, it's a bit like a child saying a million gazillion dollars, something like that. It's just, it's just an unimaginable amount of money. In other words, what Jesus is trying to say is that his debt was far greater than his ability to pay. In fact, Jesus simply tells us in verse 25, he could not pay. Probably one of the biggest understatements in the Gospels, in all of Scripture indeed. And the point that Jesus is making here is, we all owe God a vast debt. The debt represents everything we owe to God. All of the love, all of the covenant loyalty, all of the regard for his glory, all of the obedience that he requires and we did not render. This vast debt in the parable represents the vast debt that we owe God. And like in the parable, the debt is far greater than our ability to pay. Our pockets are empty while our debt is billions, quadrillions, quintillions, and keep going. You see, the point is we do not need a salary. We need a gift. We don't need swimming lessons. We need a lifeguard. We don't need a place to work. We need someone to work in our place. And that person is Jesus Christ. Romans 3, to 25. I love the way the message translates it. God makes people right with himself through their faith in Jesus Christ. God gave him as a way to forgive sin through faith in the blood of Jesus' death. Our master has forgiven us an insurmountable debt. God does not, and does God demand payment from us? Does he demand reimbursement? He demands no payment. Well, at least not from us. And the promises we make, you know them, don't you? Oh, Lord, if you get me out of this mess, I promise I'll never disappoint you again. Lord, Lord, just, just, just help me out of this problem, and I promise to obey you for the rest of my life. I'll become a missionary. I'll go to Syria. I'll go to Raqqa. I'll evangelize ISIS, whatever. Don't Lord, just get me out of this problem. We're as bad as the debtor in the story. Listen to him. Verse 26, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Remember, he needs 1,353 years to pay it off working every day anyway. The thought of pleading for mercy never enters his mind. And though he never begs for grace, he receives it. He leaves the king's chambers a debt-free man. But he doesn't seem to believe it, really believe it. Look at verses 28 to 30. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, hundred days wages. This other man, remember, he owes 60 million days wages to his master. This man only owes a hundred days wages. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so, likewise, his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I'll pay you. 
one like the master, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Something is very wrong with this picture, isn't it? Are these the actions of a man who's been forgiven billions and trillions and quadrillions? Choking this man who owes him just a few bucks? Are these the words of a man who's been set free? Pay me the money you owe me. Not only that, he demands that the debtor be thrown into prison until he can repay the debt. How bizarre. He's not only ungrateful, he's irrational. How can he expect the man to earn money while he's in prison? If he's got no funds out of jail, how's he going to discover money in jail? What's he going to do? Sell magazines to the inmates? Start up a hacksaw business? Import digging tools? The decision makes no sense. And that's the point of the parable. Unforgiveness makes no sense. But the question that comes to me as I read this parable is how could this happen? How can one forgiven so much forgive so little? How could a free man not be quick to set others free? Well, I think part of the answer is found in Jesus' words in Luke chapter 7, verses 47. Whereas in another parable, Jesus says this to Simon the Pharisee. In the context of reaching out and offering forgiveness to a sinful woman. Jesus says, speaking to the Pharisee and of the Pharisee, the person who is forgiven only a little will love only a little. You see, to believe, to really believe, to believe experientially that we are totally and utterly debt-free is seldom easy. Even, though we, even if we've stood before the throne and we've heard it from the king himself, we still doubt. And as a result, many are forgiven only a little. Not because the grace of the king is limited, but because the faith of the sinner is small. God is willing to forgive all. He's willing to wipe the slate clean. He guides us into the pool of mercy and he asks us to bathe, to immerse ourselves. Some plunge in. Others just touch the surface. Others just play around the edge. At worst, they leave unforgiven. At best, they leave feeling unforgiven. Not experientially enjoying the forgiveness of God. Apparently, that was the problem with the servant. He still felt in debt. How else can we explain his bizarre behavior? Rather than forgive his transgressor, he chokes him. I'll squeeze it out of you, he says. He hates the very sight of him. Why? Because the man owes him so much? Hardly. He hates the man because it reminds him of his own debt to his master. The king forgave the debt, but the servant never really received and accepted and enjoyed the grace of the king. Now we can understand why the writer to the Hebrews insisted in chapter 12 and verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See, what, what the writer is saying where grace is missed, 
bitterness is born. But where grace is embraced, forgiveness flourishes. And what many believe to be Paul's final letter, Paul urges Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1, be strong in the grace we have in Christ Jesus. How insightful is this last exhortation? Paul doesn't urge Timothy to be strong in prayer or in Bible study or in good works, as good and as vital as these things are. He wants his son in the faith to major in grace, to graduate from the university of grace, to claim this grace, to claim this territory, to dwell in this truth. He says, if you're going to miss anything, don't miss this. Don't miss the grace of God. You see, the longer we walk in the garden, the more we can enjoy the smell of the flowers. And the more we immerse ourselves in grace, the more likely we are to give grace. Could this be the key to coping with anger and bitterness and unforgiveness? Could this be the key to not demanding payment? But in pondering the payment of your Savior. In the story, the king forgives a vast debt simply by speaking a word. But in the real world, our debt is not forgiven by a word. It's forgiven at the incredible cost of the blood of Jesus Christ. Your friend broke his promises. Your boss did not keep her word. I'm sorry. But before you take action, think and answer this question. How did God react when you broke your promises to him? You've been lied to. It hurts to be deceived. But before you double up your fists, think, think, how did God respond when you lied to him? You've been neglected, forgotten, left behind, pushed outside of the in-group. Rejection hurts. But before you get even, get honest with yourself. Have you ever neglected God? Have there been times when you haven't been attentive to his will and to his presence? None of us have. How did God act when you neglected him? You see, the key to forgiving is to quit focusing on what others have done to us and to focus on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But Martin, you say, it's not fear. Someone has to pay for what he did. I agree. Someone must pay. And someone has paid. But look, you don't understand. Look, you don't understand. This guy does not deserve grace. He does not deserve forgiveness. He's not worthy of forgiveness. I'm not saying he is. But are you? Besides, what other choice do you have? Hatred, bitterness, unforgiveness? The alternative is not very appealing. Look at what happens when we fail to forgive. Verse 34 of our passage. The master was angry, and he put the servant into prison to be punished until he could pay everything he owned. Remember, outside of prison, he needs 1,343 years to pay. How's he going to pay it from prison? He can't. Unforgiving servants end up in prison. Prisons of anger. Prisons of guilt prisons of depression, and finally says Jesus, the prison of hell itself. 
But for the time being, God doesn't have to put us into jail. We create our own. In the words of Job 21, 23 to 25, some men stay healthy till the day they die. Others have no happiness at all. They live and they die with bitter hearts. Oh, the gradual grasp of hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness. It, it, it begins like a crack in my windshield. Thanks to the speeding truck down a gravel road, my window was chipped. With time, the nick became a crack, and the crack became a spiderweb of fragments. I couldn't drive without thinking of that jerk who drove too fast. I could even describe him for you, even though I've never seen him. He's some deadbeat bum who cheats on his wife. He drives with a six-pack right next to him on the chair there. And he keeps the television on so loud every night that his neighbors can't get to sleep. His carelessness blocked my vision. And it didn't do too much for the windshield either. Ever heard the expression blind rage? John Claypool in his book, The Preaching Event, he tells the story of two identical twins. It goes like this. He says, the boys' lives became inseparably intertwined. From the very first, they dressed alike, went to the same schools, did all the same things. In fact, they were so close that they never married. But they came back and took over the running of the family business when their father died. Their relationship with each other was pointed to as a model of creative collaboration. One morning, a customer came into the store and made a small purchase. The brother who waited upon him put the dollar bill on the top of the cash register and then walked to the front door with the man. Sometime later, he remembered what he had done, but as he went back to the cash register, the dollar bill was gone. He asked his brother if he'd seen the dollar bill that he'd, he'd put onto the cash register, and his brother replied that he had not seen uh, the bill in question. Well, that's funny, said the other. <clears throat> I distinctly remember placing the dollar bill on the cash register, and no one else has been in since. Had the matter been dropped at that point, a mystery involving a tiny little bit of money would have ended. Nothing would have come of it. However, one hour later, this time with a noticeable hint of suspicion in his voice, the brother asked again, are you sure that you didn't see that dollar bill sitting on the cash register? Well, the brother was quick to catch the note of accusation and fled back in defense of anger. That was the beginning of the first breach, serious breach of trust that ever come between these two brothers. It grew wider and wider and wider. Every time they tried to discuss the issue, new charges and counter charges were mixed into the brew. Until think, finally things got so bad they dissolved the partnership. They ran a partition right down the middle of the store and turned what had been a harmonious partnership into angry competition. In fact, it became a source of division for the entire community each twin trying to enlist others on their side against the other. This warfare went on for more than 20 years. Then one day, a car with an out-of-state license on it parked in front of the store. A well-dressed man got out and went into one of the sides of the store and inquired how long had the merchant been in business for. Well, when he had learned that he'd 
been in business for more than 20 years, the stranger said, then you are the one with whom I must settle an old score. Some 20 years ago, he said, I had been out of work and I, I was drifting from place to place. And I happened to get off a boxcar in your part of the town. I had absolutely no money. I had not eaten for days. And I was walking down the alley behind your store. I looked through the open door and I noticed this dollar bill sitting on the cash register. Everyone was at the front of the, at the, front of the store. I'd been raised as a Christian. I'd never before stolen in all of my life. Well, that morning I was hungry and I gave in to temptation. I slipped into the door and I took that dollar bill. This act has weighed upon my conscience ever since. And I finally decided that I'd never be at peace. And so I came back and I faced up to that old sin and made amends. Would you now let me replace that money and pay whatever damages are appropriate? Well, the stranger was surprised to see the old man shaking his head in dismay. And beginning to weep. Well, when the brother had gotten control of himself, he took the stranger by the arm and said, I want you to go next door and repeat exactly the same story that you just told me. Well, the stranger did so. And not only, were the, and not only this time was there one man, but there were two old men looking remarkably alike, both weeping uncontrollably. Let me be very clear. Hatred will sour your outlook. It will break your back. The load of bitterness and unforgiveness is too heavy to bear. Your knees will buckle under the strain. Your heart will break between, beneath its weight. The mountain before you as a Christian is steep enough without the heaviness of hatred and bitterness and anger on your back. The wisest choice, the only choice, is to drop your anger, let go of your bitterness, Give up your unforgiveness. You will never, ever be called upon to give more grace than what God has given you. If we love the grace of God and we love it in the Reformed Church, we love talking about it, then we must extend it to others. Otherwise, we do not know the grace of God or the God of grace at all. A failure to forgive, says Jesus in this parable, raises doubts that the one who never forgives has ever tasted the grace of God. A refusal to forgive casts our own forgiveness in doubt. As Jesus said in verse 35, the final verse of our passage, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. You see, forgiveness breaks the cycle of blame. It loosens the stranglehold of bitterness and guilt and resentment and anger. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, a book I'd encourage you all to read, Philip Yancey tells about a group discussion uh, he was in a, on the topic of forgiveness. And during that discussion, a woman named Rebecca got up and told her story. It's a true story. It's a heartbreaking story. Philip Yancey writes in his book, Rebecca married a pastor who had some renown as a, as a retreat leader. It became apparent, however, that her husband also had a dark side. He dabbled in pornography, and on his trips to other cities, he solicited prostitutes. Sometimes he asked Rebecca for forgiveness, sometimes he did not. 
In time, he left her for another woman, Julianne. Rebecca told us how painful it was for her, a pastor's wife, to suffer such humiliation. Some churches who had greatly respected her husband treated her as if his sexual straying was her fault. Devastated, she found herself pulling away from all human contact, unable to trust another person. She could never ever put her husband out of her mind because they had children, they had to maintain regular contact in order to arrange visitation privileges. Rebecca tells the group that she had the increasing sense that unless she forgave her husband, a huge lump of revenge would be passed on to her children. For months she prayed, get this, for months. Forgiveness is not easy. It doesn't come easily. At first her prayers seemed to be as vengeful as some of the Psalms. She asked God to give her husband what he deserved. Finally, she came to the place of letting God, not herself, decide what he deserved. One night, Rebecca called her ex-husband and said in a shaky, strained voice, I want you to know that I forgive you for what you've done to me. And I forgive Julianne too. He laughed off her apology, unwilling to admit he had done anything wrong. Despite his rebuff, that conversation helped Rebecca get past her feelings of bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. A few years later, Rebecca got a hysterical call from Julianne, the woman who had stolen her husband. She had been attending a a ministerial conference in Minneapolis, and her husband had left the hotel room to go for a walk. A few hours later, she received a phone call from the police. Her husband had been arrested for soliciting a prostitute. On the phone with Rebecca, Julianne was sobbing. I never believed you, she said. I kept telling myself that what you said was not true. And even if it was true, surely he had changed by now. And now this, I feel ashamed, I feel hurt, I feel guilty. I have no one on earth who can understand me. And then I remember that night, that night that you said you forgave us. And I thought maybe you could understand what I'm going through. It's a terrible, terrible thing to ask, I know, but could I come and talk to you? Well, somehow Rebecca found the courage to invite Julianne over that very same evening. They sat in the living room, cried together, shared stories of betrayal together. They prayed together. Julianne now points to that night as the night that she became a Christian. Our group was hushed. As she told the story, she was describing forgiveness, not in the abstract, but in the nearly incomprehensible scene of human linkage, husband stealer and abandoned wife kneeling side by side on the living room floor, praying. For a long time, I'd felt foolish about forgiving my husband, Rebecca told us, but that night I realized the fruit of forgiveness. Julianne was right. I could understand what she was going through. And because I had been through it too, I could be there by her side rather than as her enemy. We'd both been betrayed by the same man. Now it was up to me to teach her 
how to overcome the feelings of hatred and bitterness and anger that she was feeling. Well, if there's one lesson that the story teaches us, it's this. And this is the reason I've told it. Forgiveness is possible, even for the most deep, painful, grievous wounds. And if you are a Christian, regardless of the wrong that's been done to you, you can forgive. By God's grace, you can forgive the domestic wound. By God's grace, you can forgive the professional wrong. For your soul's sake, you must. Because when God's grace comes into your heart, it makes you merciful. It makes you compassionate. It makes you loving. It makes you forgiving. Forgiveness alone can break the cycle of pain and blame. Breaking the chain of unforgiveness. The chain of unforgiveness that we witnessed in the opening story of Kevin Tunnell can only be broken when one party says, stop, I will break the chain. And the only way to do so is through forgiveness. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Forgiveness offers a way out. It doesn't settle all the questions of blame and fairness. Often it pointedly ignores them. But it does allow a relationship to start over, to begin anew. If we do not, we remain bound to the people we refuse to forgive. We, we remain held in their vice grip. Not to forgive imprisons me in the past. And it locks out all potential for change and relationship with God and others. But when we genuinely forgive, when we really, truly forgive from the heart, we discover that a prisoner has been set free, and that prisoner was me. In the end, the only alternative to forgiveness, the only thing harder than forgiveness, is the, is the alternative. Bitterness, anger, hatred, and unforgiveness. But as I said, when we genuinely forgive, we set a prisoner free, and that prisoner is us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. And we've only just touched on the surface of this really crucially important theme. But it's been such a rich and magnificent subject for us this morning. Fill our hearts, we pray, with affection, with love, with forgiveness for those that may have hurt us or wounded us or mistreated us. You've forgiven us an unpayable debt. May we be eager and gracious and loving and willing to forgive those around us, to be reconciled to them for your sake, for the sake of the unity of the church, for the sake of the solidarity of the testimony of your transforming power through the gospel. And we thank you that the Spirit of God can make this happen. It is the Spirit who is the glue, the bond that holds us together in the unity of peace and love. Lord, we desire that for our own church and for our own lives and our own families, our own city and our own nation. We desire that most of all for the, for the sake of the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to now respond to the word of